This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. What's more powerful, the word of God or the threat of a gun? And if you wanted to leave a legacy in life, would it be your good character or would it be what you controlled? Big questions for a big book. The book is The Death of John Lacey by Ben Hobson. Welcome to Published or Not, Ben. I am extremely glad to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) On page one, we read about John Lacey, who had one last regret before he died. What was that? Yeah, so it says in the first page here, it's the opening of the book, it says, He did not regret that he had killed the boy. He regretted only he had not killed him so hard he had stayed proper dead. We have a feeling about John Lacey right from the very beginning, but we don't learn any more about him for a couple of chapters. Mm. It's two generations of Montagues. Edwin Montague, the convict, now a ticket of leave man, trying to farm just out of Geelong and Bannockburn. And who makes up his family? Well, he has his wife, who is originally from Scotland, and that's Isabel, and she is constantly dreaming of returning back home to Scotland and she's just very unhappy with her lot in life and Edwin, I think, abandons her to it and to her misery and doesn't help her at all. Uh, And then he has his young son, Ernst, and throughout the chapter we find that he's had another son as well, Joe. Yeah. Uh, The father is often away trading and the mother requests books, but they never come. Mm. So she's teaching Ernest to read from a collection of settlers' letters from Port Phillip District. How does she explain the word conscience? Oh, that's great. Um, I forget where that is actually here in the book, but... Yeah, because he does pause on the word. And is it in the book? Can I yeah. find it? Uh, knowing right from wrong and God gives it to you. That's that's the term. It's so. Yeah, conscience is knowing right from wrong, right? Yeah. And God gives it to you. Mm. Apart from Edwin and Ernest, the only other people she sees are the Aborigines. How does she feel about them? And here I'm going to ask Ben to read from page 25. Uh, yes. His mother sighed and put her knitting down on her lap. It's not right. They got no religion. They got nothing at all. They just walk around with nothing on, and when we try to civilize them, they point their spears at us. You don't like what we have to offer, then you don't get nothing from us. We go our way, and they can go theirs. Yeah, look, even though they trade and give her a possum skin, which is so much warmer than anything she's got, she still burns it. And better made too, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she has this deep resentment for her lot and I think that extends to the country. She's really isolated and all she hears is gossip and stories from the town which aren't painting a true picture of reality. And so she is made up of a lot of hatred for the First Nations people in the area, the Wadarung people. And of course Ernest is only getting what he reads from the settlers who are out there Mm. settling the land Mm. and have come across and perhaps not well and not write about them well. Yeah, and there was was a lot of, and I mean, you know, this is why it's such a, a complex thing to talk about nowadays because there's been such a long history of um, colonizers and people, you know, settlers and convicts writing just complete propaganda and mm. misinformation about the indigenous population of Australia. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to unpick. It's a lot of time spent where um, white people have been writing about um, 
you know, the First Nations people of Australia without any thought at all, without any respect and just doing what they like and sort of painting them as an object in the distance, you know. Young Ernest sees them differently. Hmm. And you've summed that up beautifully on page 21. Yeah. Ernest thought about what he'd seen of the blacks and also about what he'd read. He didn't think they were stupid at all. They seemed to Ernst to understand much more about how the land worked, and this terrified him. His father's fields were one way to demonstrate knowledge, but they had another. Whenever they returned to the forest, they moved like water down a stream over rocks, fluid and easy, bending to slip between the cracks. His father was not like that. His father was an axe. And when he heard them speak, this is a quote from the book, Mm. the words and sounds had a melody to them. Instead of shouting at the bush to clobber it, their voices let the wind and leaves carry them along. Mm. And then Russell saved him. Not why or how, but who was Russell? Russell is a very interesting character. So Russell is a Wadarung man and he... Has when he was a very young man, he started to work um, for some of the settlers in the area, starting to just work on their farms. And he eventually was recruited by a man to go and translate and go and be sort of an envoy to other clans and people in the area. So he has a really great grasp of English and he, I think, has returned to his original family and sort of pushed away that part that he'd sort of taken on in himself. But he is a way for Ernst to sort of learn a lot more about the Wadarung people and about their actual way of life from a person who's firsthand in there as opposed to all the stories that his mother's been hearing. And he tells Ernest the most incredible truth, quote, we don't have secrets, we don't take. Mm. (laughs) It's a big theme in here, hey, about the... It's just... It was constant when I was doing research. It just constantly struck me just how, just like a battering ram, the convicts were, the settlers were, the people who came over here, and you know, like John Lacey, were just after power, right? They were just after power, and they just clobbered their way through. And it's not that they thought about it and decided that they were going to then do the wrong thing. They didn't even have the thought. It didn't strike them to think this way that they should be more mindful or they shouldn't clobber and shout and that struck me a lot like and that's John Lacey I think too he just does not it doesn't even strike him to think in a moral way he just sees what he can take and takes it one fateful night Ernest and Joe both lost their mothers and became brothers and then it's eight years later and Ernest has offered a job minding horses whose horses were they (laughs) Yeah, this is the first instance where um, John Lacey, we sort of moved to a different time period, but this is John Lacey and his brother Gray, Mm. Gray Lacey, and um, he's been asked to mind the horses and... uh, (laughs) Doesn't get paid. Gets swindled very quickly. He He gets taken from him, right? This theme of John Lacey just takes advantage of whoever he sees. If he can manipulate them, he does. Well, the two brothers are setting up camp, but they have different ambitions. John, mm. what does he want? John's main quest, it's a bit hard to define, but I feel like he just, he wants his life, he wants his, he wants his name to be remembered. He wants to have something powerful and such a, 
a powerful presence in this world and in this life that people will remember him from generations. He wants legacy. He wants power over everybody else. He wants to be a king, really, mm. and, and rule over people. Whereas Gray, his brother, who is a little bit more thoughtful, I think, although he still doesn't stand up to John when he could, um, Gray, I think, is much more interested in uh, the typical life that a that a that a settler or a prospector might be after, which is he wants a family, he wants to build a home, he wants to have a stable place where he can raise his children and provide food for them and things like that. Well, John, his greed is in gold. He's rather addicted to that, mm. and ra- while he's helping his brother set up a, a storehouse, a shop in this new town. He's down, John's down by a river and he sees some young kids playing in the river and John shows them a gold nugget. One boy pointed where he could find some more and it's here that John sets up an illegal mine and finds more gold. Mm. But I'm going to ask you to read from page 155 Mm -hmm. just about what John thought of the Aborigines. Mm. The kid was up now and watching him as he squinted it in the sun and looked down as John met his gaze. They weren't friends, and John had never expected them to be, considering how he'd stolen him, but it was a strange sort of thing. There didn't seem to be hatred in him either. John couldn't puzzle it out and came to the conclusion that he was such a foreign creature, there would never be understanding. A foreign creature. It's just... But see, and John doesn't... He doesn't even think to try to understand or to come from a place of mutual respect or understanding. He just views this person, this person, as someone to be used and abused. And he's just rotten to the core, I think, for not even having the question, you know? Yeah. Well, the township was growing, the storehouse was built, and if you uh, bought something in the shop, you could use the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a commodity back then, yeah. But in the opening, John looked at the crowd and knew, quote, they loved his brother, they only abided him. Mm-hmm. There was also a church with a preacher who spoke, spoke about, blessed are the poor. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not quite the right sermon for a, a, a gold mining town. No, John uh, kind of stands up points back at him a little bit and said, well, you're not poor, you're up on your pedestal, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's here John and Ernest re-meet. Mm. What happens then? Ernest accosts him and gets this little gang of thieves together to say to John Lacey, like, you owe me from when I minded your horse earlier. You still owe me. And John, I think in this moment, is he does the one thing in his entire life that is actually a little unselfish. He decides to actually say, you know what, here's my knife. This was my father's. He sort of bestows on the young Ernst and his brother Joe. He's like, here's this knife and you use this to protect your family like I've done. And so one thing I think he's done that's worth anything in this life is that little moment. So now we jump to 1870. Ernst is in his 20s and Joe Mm -hmm. is still in his teens Mm -hmm. and they're in Ballarat. So let's just hear a little bit from page 183 that sets this brotherhood. Ernst walked into the muddied street without looking at his brother to follow, because he knew he would. Since they'd left their father, Joe had only had him, and Ernst had kept it that way on purpose. He didn't want Joe depending on anybody else. Ernest has found a way to make money, but he's not doing it very well. No, yeah. (laughs) That was actually um, based on some research I did. They were called hotel barbers. Yeah, it was a particular type of um, 
criminality or thievery where they would check into a hotel and then in the middle of the night they'd break into the other rooms and steal and then go on the run. Well, that's exactly what's happening. They're running away from Ballarat and they find themselves in the township of Lacey. Mm -hmm. They are not the only newcomers in town, Gilbert Delaney. Mm. Mm. What's he come as? Well, Gilbert Delaney is he's he's got his own things going on in his in his history, but he's come to this town to be the new minister installed in a church and he's sort of brought there by the behest of John Lacey. But I think John Lacey sees the church and sees Gilbert as being able to be manipulated, so then he can then manipulate the crowds and the masses to all conform to how John sees this town forming, which is this perfect place where Everything goes exactly according to his plan. There's a quote. We have the laws of the land to abide, but who is the law in Lacey? <laughs> yeah, there's little law in Lacey, and it's really John Lacey's is the law. He even um, he has a lot of um, the police in his pocket. They actually come to Lacey, and he just sends them away. Uh, he has a lot of power in that place, in that town that's sort of named after him. Yeah, and of course... The law for Aborigines? None. None. And this is, I think, the heartbreaking thing too. You know, Ernst and Joe, I think Ernst has a great deal of love for his brother, but it's still quite a controlling relationship. And Joe is constantly saying, I don't want to do this. And he's sort of being dragged against his will and put into all these different positions where he's not having a choice about how he wants to live his own life. Let's just come back to Russell's simple words. We don't have secrets. We don't take. Mm. You know, I started out with the introduction, what's more powerful, the word of God or the threat of the gun? Mm. And if you wanted to leave a legacy in life, would it be your own good character or what you controlled? And you really left us thinking about that at the end. And it was a really good read. Oh, I'm glad. Thank you. The climax of the story is in a church with many people adjusting their religious beliefs with the right and the wrong Mm. and what they think should occur, and the necessity for justice. This was all in The Death of John Lacey by Ben Hobson. Thank mm. you so much, Ben. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You had really cool questions. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and now it's David's turn. Who were the personalities who shaped history? In Paul Ashford Harris's Love, Oil and the Fortunes of War, we see how three individuals in particular influenced events in the lead up to World War One. So, Paul, welcome to 3CR. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with Jackie Fisher, a journey from penury to becoming First Sea Lord in 1904, but he transformed the British Navy. Yes, he did. And... Um... I think it's hard for us to know or to realise that, you know, now where we are in 2023, that the how difficult that would be for an outsider um, in the, an establishment organisation like the Navy. So it's a tribute to just what an incredibly charismatic figure he was that he managed to drive through these changes. The British Navy was the largest in the world. I think they had, so he had to, it was not only switching it from coal to oil, which was a huge thing to do. But um, I think he called it a miser's hoard of useless junk. Well, that's a pretty strong, those are pretty strong words from the first sea lord about his own navy. So you can imagine how that went down with some of the other admirals. 
He established a relationship in many ways with Winston Churchill, who was also keen to reform things. Yeah, well, Winston was going through that period where he switched from the Conservatives to the Liberals. And so um, he, in his own way, although he was much more of an establishment figure, um, was a bit of an outsider, really. And I think he and Jackie you know, had the same sort of enthusiastic public personality. And Jackie needed uh, Churchill, and Churchill needed Jackie until they had the terrible falling out over, over Gallipoli. So, but it was, it was very unfortunate. What was that falling out? I mean, basically, Winston lost the fleet almost. Well, yeah, well, see, what really happened was that Jackie didn't want to risk his brand new battleship, the Queen Elizabeth, you know, the pride and the fleet in the Dardanelle Straits. And Jackie had realised, and the rest of them probably had too, that mines and submarines were suddenly a really major issue. And mines in the Gallipoli Strait were, were really dangerous and they sank a couple of French battleships. Um, so Jackie said, look, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this my way, which means the Navy and the Army have to go together. And the Army said, no, no, you know, send the Navy in first and then we'll come along. Uh, yeah, so and Jackie was a pretty <laughs> much of a jack-in-a-box jack figure. And he just blew a fuse and said, I'm not risking my Navy unless, you know, we do it my way. Um, so uh, in the book, there's the letter that he wrote, which is just extraordinary when he resigned. I mean, he just, yeah. But Churchill knew fundamentally that he needed Fisher in the Navy, that if they were ever going to reform it, only somebody like Fisher was going to do it. This brings us then to oil and an Australian connection, because in order to basically provide the fuel for the fleet and the new Navy, they had to switch from coal to oil. But this brings us to William Knox Darcy, the Mount Morgan mine, and another journey from virtual bankruptcy uh, to uh, fame and fortune in some ways. Absolutely, yeah. And funnily enough, the Melbourne connection there, as you may have seen, is, of course, Walter Hall, who, who started with Cobb & Co in Melbourne and then became an MP in Melbourne and became Darcy's partner in Mount Morgan. And, of course, that now... That's what became the Walter and Eliza Hall uh, charity, which, of course, is still going. So there's an interesting sort of little Melbourne connection in there. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Darcy was quite a character. And, and, of course, he was a huge risk taker, mostly with other people's money, if he could do it that way. Uh, but to come across this lease of, you know, virtually three quarters of Persia for not much money at all, and then... You know, they got more and more desperate because they weren't finding any oil and they were literally on the point of pulling out. I mean, literally about to just, you know, wind up and all go home. Um, when they, you know, they, they got the biggest gusher in the history of oil exploration, which eventually, of course, led to BP, but um, that's another story. But That's yeah, another so story. And also, 1908, just at the right time. What's there's that? also the legacy of the Mount Morgan mine. They're still cleaning that up in Queensland yeah, to this yeah, they day. Are. That brings us to the third figure, Gertrude Bell, who in some ways 
is, I don't know whether you'd say tragic figure. She's caught in this crucible of history. She is an expert on Persia, like T.E. Lawrence. She is actually fated by uh, the British or consulted by the politicians because of her expert knowledge. She wants to do the right thing by Persia, but in many ways, it's going to transform the landscape. Her advice basically beggars Persia in some ways. Um, the finding of oil, the changing of a culture, it's quite a, quite a journey she's on. Well, she had a terribly difficult um, road to hoe, really, because she, she really hated oil. I mean, she was trying to preserve the ancient history and of, of Persia. And she knew perfectly well that once people started on oil exploration and putting in refineries and all that sort of thing, that, you know, it would all likely get trampled. So it was difficult for somebody like Churchill to persuade her, look, we need your help. It's difficult to know how much she really did help. I think she really would have had some serious reservations about what was going on, but she could probably, she was smart enough to see that she either got on board and tried to do the best she could, or she stood back and, and that would probably be worse. So um, I think it would have been a very difficult exercise for her. But when I discovered the relationship between her and Jackie Fisher, I, I mean, I was quite astonished. I hadn't really realised that until later on. I suddenly saw that, uh, of all things, her half-sister had married Admiral Richmond, who was Jackie Fisher's closest advisor. So that was that was a sort of light bulb moment for me. I thought, this will be very, you know, I'll have some fun with this. I, I'll, I can just imagine what a, a connection between two personalities like, like uh, Gertrude and Jackie Fisher would have been like. So that was, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Also, then, you make a reference to Russia. Had the British not been able to get the concessions in Persia, Russia would have. And you, there's an interesting line in there about the attitude of the Russians, which sort of, well, is very prescient. Yeah, well, I think um, Lord Curzon, who, was, who really ran India, the famous Lord Curzon, um, he was very worried about uh, Russia getting a, a, a route to India and cutting cutting India off. And, and um, so it was actually Curzon who was the one who realised that um, if there's oil in Persia, we better we better get our hands on it. So, yeah, he, he played quite an important role, I think, behind the scenes. Um, he was incredibly influential. So what Lord Curzon wanted, Lord Curzon got, basically. But, but there was that line about the brutality of the Russians. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, if, uh, I mean, I'm not a huge, uh, I'm, I'm not hugely well informed about Russian history, but the history that I know, yeah, the history of brutality in Russia goes right back. And um, I think it's hard for us today, looking at what's going on right now, to realise that this is just, you know, this is what went on in Russia and has gone on for hundreds of years. And, uh, you know, they just see the world a different way than we do. Lastly, then, we have these events... Yes. Where these three people were pivotal, still echoing today the formation of Iraq and uh, the fighting over Iraq. Uh, 
in recent years, um, we are still seeing the repercussions of this period of history prior to World War One, then into World War One, still resonating today. Absolutely. And um, you can see over that period um, how easily things could have gone a different way. I mean, basically, Gertrude Bell backed the Hussainis, uh, the Jordanians, really. And, and in fact, um, she sort of backed the wrong horse. The Saudis became the, you know, the dominant force. And, of course, at that point that she was operating, most of that whole area was controlled by the Ottoman Turks. So she was playing around in that area, but unbeknown to him, her, the English and the French had gone off in their own way and uh, just sort of, as they did in those days, said, oh, no, we're going to carve it up like this. Thanks very much for your help. <laughs> so what we have in Hello? Love, Oil and the Fortunes of War is an account of three people's lives, and there's a personal sort of view of the fallings out between people, but also of the personal tragedies in these people's lives against this backdrop of history, which has in many ways shaped the modern world. So the book is historical fiction, uh, Love, Oil and the Fortunes of War. The author is Paul Ashford Harris, and the publisher is Ventura Press. So, Paul, thank you very much for talking with me today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, David. I've enjoyed it, and uh, I hope you've got something out of it. But, yeah, it's an interesting story. Whether it's well told or not, it's certainly an interesting story. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.